I've done a handful of baptisms before, but I have a lot more experience holding a baby now, so I feel very comfortable and confident in doing that today versus doing it prior to this. That was wonderful. Thank you. This summer, we're preaching a series of sermons on called and what it means to be called and the many perspectives of calling, both as individuals, as a church, as the church at large. And we've based this sermon series on Mark Laberton's book, Called. And if you haven't yet, he was here. He's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. And he was here with us last month, and he preached a sermon to begin this sermon series for us this summer. And in chapter four of this book, Called, he goes into this discussion on the difference between promised land theology and exile theology. And this is a very complex conversation and a dialogue. But in the midst of it, he says this. He says, I believe the people of God live in exile. I believe the people of God live in exile. This is an interesting statement, and today I'd like to explore this idea together as a church of what it means to be God's people living in exile. And to do this, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29 to open this exploration. So if you'd like to, you can follow along on the screens, or you can open up the Pew Bible if you'd like to do that as well to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. Listen to God's word. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And it said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. When Laberton talks about being called, God's people being called into exile, and he writes these words, he's saying this in the context of a conversation, I think, within American evangelical Christianity. And it's kind of hard to get into this conversation if you don't know much about it, about the difference between what he's trying to talk about with promised land theology and exile theology. Um, But one of the major laments in this conversation that he talks about is that Christianity is receiving a lower or a lesser market share of power in the American way of life. And he knows that many consider and dream of a time when this was a Christian nation. 
And you see this now happening actually right now in the news when you look at the news, um, especially regarding this dialogue on a new Supreme Court justice. People are asking questions like, who would a justice appease evangelicals? But you don't actually hear a lot of people talking about who would appease a Buddhist person or who would appease a Muslim person or who would appease a Jewish person. You just don't hear that much. But you do hear people saying, but who would appease an evangelical? And this is precisely what Laberton is trying to talk about, is that within Christianity, should we continue to kind of pursue this kind of social power, this, this power in the midst of the people around us? Uh, but he has this weariness, this, this sadness, this lament at some level that he speaks to, that he speaks into, about this motif of declining evangelical power. And he talks about it as a metaphor for exile, about how evangelicals have been exiled from this country, have been exiled from mainstream religiosity. I think that's an interesting conversation, but I've been struck actually in thinking about this book and thinking about this text in Jeremiah 29 that religious exile might not be something that's external to the community, but perhaps it's something that's happening right within, right within our own community, if we're going to try to think of exile as a metaphor. Years ago, when I was a seminary student at Princeton Theological Seminary, our academic calendar was broken into 12-week semesters, and it was a 10-week semester, and then it was a short-term semester of three weeks, and it, we would have one class. It would be just an intensive class where we would meet every day for three weeks, uh, and this gave us an opportunity to take classes that were unique, that would be not otherwise offered. And one of the classes I took during this intensive period was on interfaith dialogue and youth ministry. And we had a guest professor that stayed with us during that time. His name is Ibo Patel. And Ibo is a leading Muslim academic and community organizer in Chicago. And he came to the class as a teacher to help us process and think through interfaith dialogue and what this would look like. And one day, Ibo and my other teacher, Dr. Dean, the two of them had us do some role-playing in class, in front of the class. We sat in a big circle, and they put two chairs in the middle of the classroom. And they had us imagine a situation in which one of us was a youth pastor, and the other one of us would be a student that had just went to college, and we were home for Thanksgiving. And we wanted to ask our youth pastor some advice about what do we do and how do we talk to a friend of ours in school that is Muslim? assuming that the student had never actually spoken to anybody from the Islamic faith before. So we sat in class, and one by one, we did this role-playing. And one of my classmates, well, while she was acting as the youth pastor, I remember she said something along the lines of which, college is a great time to learn about things you may have never learned before. So that's why I think it's really important that you should listen to your friend. And you never know. Maybe you'll find out that you'll want to become a Muslim too. Ibo Patel, he laughed really hard in front of the whole room. Nobody else was laughing, but he was. And he said to us, he said, he said, Dr. Dean, what are you teaching people at the seminary? Isn't this a Christian seminary? And we all laughed a bit too, and we had a good laugh about it. And then he promised that he wasn't there to convert us to Islam, but really to help us process through interfaith dialogue. And I think that moment, that moment served as a really interesting observation for me, and I think a lot of us in the room uh, that we don't know what to do. Even people being trained theologically don't really know what to do in the context of the pressures of rising religious pluralism. And in many ways, Christians have 
sort of exiled themselves from core truths and opted for what feels like a watered-down faith at some times. The other teacher in that class, Dr. Dean, she wrote this great book a few years ago. It's called Almost Christian, and it was based off the study of the faith of teenagers, where they followed teenagers for eight years, four years in high school and four years in college, and they studied about 1,500 students all across the country. It was an amazing study. And in the book, she hypothesized that teens weren't really against religion. They weren't against religion, but they preferred this religion that she calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, that's a mouthful, and there's a lot that goes into that. Um, But they prefer this thing called moralistic, therapeutic deism. And this is how she defines it. I, I put this up on the screen. This is how she defines what moralistic, therapeutic deism is. She says its, uh, it's guiding beliefs of this is that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, that God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem, and five, that good people go to heaven when they die. Really interesting thoughts here, that this is what she discerned as she culled this out of teenagers and young college students about their beliefs and religiosity. And in it, later on, she says this about moralistic therapeutic deism in the book. She says this. She says, moralistic therapeutic deism serves an adaptive purpose in American society, which means it is probably here to stay. One person told me that moralistic therapeutic deism is the way the church survives in American society by equipping people to be happy enough. Approaching God instrumentally as an invisible tool that empowers us to do good and feel good makes sense in a pluralistic consumer culture. Social survival in this culture requires turning down the heat on Jesus and other confessional particularities while highlighting communal benefits that make anxious people feel safe and valued. While I know this is an emaciated version of the gospel, I'm also generally in favor of people feeling safe and valued in ways that I both do and do not recognize. I too have invited moralistic therapeutic deism into my home and church. Wow, she was putting herself on the line in some ways and saying that I've been that student too that has been confused and don't know what to do. How many of us, as we look at that list too, think of religion? It seems striking to me. It seems powerful hearing her words that it's an invisible tool to make us feel good and do good. How many of us, for the sake of communal benefits, of not wanting to hurt other people, have just turned down the heat on Jesus? I think if Ibo Patel and my professor were here that day, they would end up advocating for quite the opposite of the analysis that's given here. He would say to us, the best thing is to be the fullest expression of who you are, that in times where there's this internal exile taking place, it's important to focus on particularities and staying in relationship with other people. I think I've seen this lately in the church. They're starting to wake up to this reality that church survival is no longer a matter of leaning into moralistic therapeutic deism, but trusting in Jesus and letting Jesus shape the future of who we are, our calling, as individuals and as the church in the midst of exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare.
it makes me wonder what we might learn, not just from persons who experience metaphorical exile, but perhaps physical exile as well, like Jeremiah that we read in Jeremiah 29. The people of God were captured by Babylon and taken from their homeland. You heard in verses 2, 3, and 4, it wasn't just a few people. It was the artisans. It was the smiths. It was everyone. It was the leaders of their whole community were taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. And Jeremiah hears the word of God and sends a letter to them and tells them to stay there to seek the benefit and the welfare of that city because they'll find their welfare there. I wonder what other wisdom we might have from other persons who have experienced physical exile as well. A lesser known story in our church history is that John Calvin, the person many attribute as one of the parents of Presbyterianism, was himself in exile. Calvin was born in the early 16th century in France, and he lived in Noyon for much of his life, but also spent time in Paris and Strasbourg. And a friend of his in Paris participated in protesting the Catholic Church in Paris, and they put up these vulgar posters around the city saying bad things. And they ended up condemning this friend, and they condemned Calvin at the same time, thinking that he was implicated as a part of this act. And Calvin either had the choice of staying and being put to death, or to leave. So he was exiled, and he left, and he lived in Geneva for the rest of his life. The story, of course, is a bit more complex than all of this, but exile shaped his ministry profoundly in the 16th century. Not just his ministry, but his theology, his biblical studies, and it shaped us for 500-plus years as a result of that reality. One of my professors from Princeton wrote this about Calvin. I'd like to read this. It's quite a long quote, but I think it's really interesting, and it helps us as we think about our calling as a people of God in exile. It says this, Calvin had constant contact with exiled and displaced persons. As he was in exile himself, he welcomed, he interceded, he educated them. He also wrote and preached for them and acted to guide or correct as he felt was necessary. He worked very hard to enable scattered religious refugees to survive and grow as individuals and groups and to counsel and educate ministers for people who might not be physically uprooted but had become displaced in their own society for the sake of their faith. The world of believers for Calvin's was not a fixed one. Christians were in motion. He often spoke of the story of Abraham, who through many journeys and being tossed through time and space like a tumbleweed, found himself grounded in faith, not a physical place. Perhaps what we can learn here from Calvin and from Christians who have faced exile and been forced out of their homelands is that no matter where we find ourselves, we're in motion. We may get excited about the ground upon which we stand and the, our sense of ownership over it, and yet, what Calvin would have to say to us is that that's not where our value comes from. It comes from this grounding in Jesus Christ in our faith. Calvin probably would advocate for perhaps turning up the heat on Jesus in the midst of exile, in the welcoming of these refugees and these foreigners who traveled through Geneva. And it was because of his calling in Jesus Christ that he welcomed them and took care of them and was their pastor and sought for their welfare in that place. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word welfare here in Hebrew is the word shalom, which we commonly translate into peace, but the word peace isn't adequate enough for the word shalom. Shalom is about wholeness, it's about flourishing, it's about uh, living into everything that you would hope a human could live into. It includes the religious, it includes the material, it includes the social dynamics, the, the health and the welfare of a person. It's not just the religious or the material, it's both. 
And perhaps what it looks like for us to seek the welfare of the city in which we live is to care for the religious, but it's also to care for the material, for the poor, for the poverty, and that these two are connected and they're combined together. So you can see why the scholars who translated the Bible didn't put down peace, but put down welfare, seeking the welfare of others. And we pray to the Lord to lead us, and the Lord calls us, and we respond. In Acts chapter 9, there's this beautiful call story that I think wraps up a lot of the ideas of being called into exile. There's this disciple, his name is Ananias, he's in Damascus, he's sitting there one day, and he, as he is praying, hears the Lord call to him. He calls to him, and he knows it's the voice of the Lord calling to him. And in Acts, Luke often uses the word Lord, but he really means God, he means Jesus, he means the Holy Spirit kind of wrapped up into one calling. So this is the voice of Jesus coming to him and speaking to him. And the voice tells him that he needs to go to a house on Straight Street to meet Saul, the person that will become the Apostle Paul, and to go and lay hands and pray on him. Ananias did not want to do this, if you know the story, because Saul came to Damascus to punish Ananias, who was in exile already living in Damascus for his faith in Christ. But Ananias, trusting in the voice that he hears, he goes to this house, he sees Paul, he lays his hands on him, and he prays for him in the name of the Lord. And Saul receives both physical healing, scales fall from his eyes, he, he can see again, he was blinded by the light earlier, and he receives social and spiritual healing as well. He finds a new faith in God, a new direction, a new trajectory, and also, he no longer wants to harm this one who has come and laid hands on him. In the story, Ananias, he heard Jesus' call, and in pursuing the welfare of Saul, he receives, I think, his own welfare. But he prayed for it, and he invoked the name of the Lord as he did it. He didn't turn down the heat on Jesus, so to speak. I think if we think of ourselves as being a people of God called into exile, it must be, and it ought to be, sustained and thrived on the same kind of relationship that we see with Ananias and Jesus. We are a people in constant motion, like tumbleweeds, facing the winds of religious pluralism, winds of modern politics, winds of learning about our history, and the land underneath us that perhaps we may be more like Babylon than the beloved community to which we're called. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we yoke ourselves to Christ. We ought to turn up the heat. Jesus is the one that will call us and lead us and demand from us to move certain kinds of directions and places, to seek the welfare of the city where Jesus has sent us into. For in its welfare, we will find our welfare. Let's pray together. God, you lead us. You call to us. You speak to us clearly. And so, God, we ask that in this season of life in which it seems like we just go any direction, you would give us a firm footing and a firm foundation, a solid place on which to rest our feet. And we know that's your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, help us to grow into him and to listen closely to who Jesus is in our lives and to give us a grounding as a people of God who are in exile who frankly are lost without you. So grow us closer into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.